From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Dr. Barbara Lockie, Professor of Instructional Design and Technology at Virginia Tech. She is the co-author of Streamlined ID, A Practical Approach to Instructional Design. And this is a new book. This is a 2020 publication, and it is the winner of the Outstanding Book of the Year Award by AECT. That's the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. And in light of that, I want to first say congratulations, but welcome, Dr. Lockie, to The Learning Circle. Thank you, Anthony, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, I'm very happy to have you. We've got a a mutual friend that helped connect us. That's Dr. Judith Bayless, who has been on this program before. She is my colleague here at Defense Acquisition University, so a thank you and shout out to Dr. Bayless. Now, Dr. Lockie, you've written a new article about the next generation of online education. This has been a momentous time. This has been a seismic year for online education for obvious reasons. And, you know, we've heard so much about the COVID era that we're in and then speculation about what we've been coining the post-COVID era and what that will mean to education. It's almost becoming a little bit trite. We hear a lot about this stuff, but we do need to start there because we're still in it, and a lot of things have changed in a hurry. What situations do instructional designers and instructors find themselves in now? Where are we exactly? Well, Anthony, that's a great question. I think even though we've passed the initial stages of uh, the shift to virtual learning um, on a global scale, I think we're probably now at the point of trying to figure out what's next, given that we still have uncertainty you know, with the virus and with the pandemic as a whole. But uh, we still are trying to figure out uh, where do we go from here? And But I think you know, there's some good news in that we seem to have shifted past this first initial, let's just get our classes up and running to how can we think about what to do next and how can we leverage the opportunities in this environment to make effective and engaging instructional decisions. Exactly. I relate very much to what you just said. We had kind of an all-hands-on-deck emergency ourselves at DAU because, like every other institution of our kind, we're thrown into a situation where we have to deliver everything remotely. And so it was first this emergency reaction, and then you find yourselves doing it and the realization strikes that this is a new capability and it needs maturation. And so now you know, we begin to look forward and ask ourselves, how do we do that? I think that's right, Anthony. I think instructors around the world in every learning context possible are still considering the fact that we need to be flexible and nimble in how we design the next instances of our our learning programs, because we still don't know what the future holds, right? We may have to 
shift completely to virtual, if we've been doing blended for a while, um, if the virus takes off again, like it seems to have here recently. Um, But also, I think many of us have seen the benefit of choosing multiple delivery modes to leverage the instructional power that comes with the combination of these different approaches. Yes, I agree. This has been a time where we're looking at how to do the blend and how to marshal a lot of techniques to be able to deliver good online learning. Now, the good news here is that even though this feels very new, as in most arenas, there's really nothing new under the sun. This is not without precedent in the sense that the quick pivot that we've made to emergency remote delivery may feel new, but it has its roots in stuff that's gone before. We are actually standing on the shoulders of giants. I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe speak to the need for us to look backward in order to now look forward. Well, Anthony, I'm a big fan of looking backward because I believe we can benefit tremendously by leveraging the lessons that have been learned by others who've gone before us, like those who started the early days of distance education and correspondence study and trying to figure out how do we design um, effective learning experiences when we can't be face-to-face with learners. And so there's been a lot of research that's gone on in the area of distance education for more than 100 years. And um, and then with regard to technology-mediated learning, thinking about the work of B.F. Skinner and his first-ever teaching machine um, yes. helps us look at this notion of, of programmed learning and how can we figure out um, designs of um, pathways for students that are individualized and customizable based on the, the needs of the individual student. Um, I believe we can leverage lessons learned from that as well. And Fred Keller's work in the personalized system of instruction model, where students learn independently um, concepts that are are effectively learned that way, and then gather together in classes um, for reasons that leverage the benefit of being together. And I think we're drawing a lot from these lessons learned um, in our earlier history now. Yeah, that sounds like a prelude to what we've been hearing described as flipping the classroom. Right. But it's not as new as we think it is. There has been a lot of work over the past century. So really, we've laid the groundwork for what we're facing right now. Now, we frequently hear the expression, content is king. You assign the royalty a little bit differently. You speak to the importance of the new spaces, things that are supplanting the old bricks and mortar paradigm. Can you speak to this? Absolutely, Anthony. I think while a lot of focus is placed on content design and learning outcomes in the instructional design process, it's also important to think about the learning context. And in particular, in our situation now where so many of us are are learning at home and working at home. There are factors that we've had to deal with and problems we've had to figure out in order just to make the, the experience work, right, um, as educational providers and also as learners. So in other words, context is king. The content's very important, but we really have to take account for where our students are, under what conditions they are receiving instruction. 
especially in a world now where we have it's it's not just physical spaces it's all manner of channels and virtual spaces and situations that the student finds themselves in yes and i think one of the upsides of this situation if there are any silver linings would be that we've really had to forge some paths in terms of accessibility and making these opportunities for learning available across learning contexts, right? From K-12 to higher ed to industry, government, it doesn't really matter what the learning context is. We've had to work out a lot of problems and uh, I guess leverage that old adage, necessity is the mother of invention, right? We've, we've just had to figure out how do we make learning accessible? And in doing so, in establishing new infrastructures and new administrative systems as well, that will benefit from going forward. In your article, you use the phrase E is for everyone. Are you kind of driving at that notion? That's right. And E in terms of electronic everything, right? The the benefit of having um, a multitude of learning opportunities available electronically does enhance accessibility. And it's helped us come up with some creative solutions to make learning experiences more accessible and help learners, particularly in, in educational institutions like K-12 and higher ed, be able to engage in and complete coursework and programs without hindrance, right? And so with the establishment of capacity to serve learners of all ages, whereas distance education was primarily focused on adult learners and working professionals, you know, before now, now because we've forged these pathways to make learning more accessible across the board, I think this opens new doors for K-12 education and enhances accessibility for alternative kinds of learning experiences that weren't possible before for younger learners. Yes, I was going to say, I mean, the the whole spectrum, K-12 through higher education, there's a lot that we are discovering and figuring out and accumulating in terms of best practices that are retraining instructors across the board and making online a better experience. And that's another word we hear a lot about is this idea of user experience. It's a phrase that's near and dear to DAU right now because we want to put our learners at the center of the learning, you know, with great empathy, understand everything that you said that went before, understanding their context and meeting them at their moments of need. These are all kind of catchphrases in our industry, but they really are meaningful and really practical. It's one of the things I love about the learning and development industry is that it's not just theory for theory's sake. It's very practical. It is immensely practical to students. Now, we're also seeing another shift, and that would be away from what was always the all-important concern about seat time or what we might call student contact time, to other factors now. What other factors are becoming important going forward? Well, I think this experience in the the shift to remote learning um, has given educators and instructors and instructional designers a good reason to step back and think through 
decision-making regarding the design of learning experiences, right? I mean, never before have we had a universal global (laughs) mandate to stop and think about how we do what we do. It really has been an imperative. And so in doing this, we have placed a greater focus on instructional strategies and thinking creatively about how to facilitate learning, given the parameters of the the learning environments, like we were just talking about, where students might have limited access to some kinds of resources. But taking advantage of the fact that so many resources are digital and can be accessed at any time, we can think creatively about how to design experiences that take advantage of that. And A related factor to um, thinking more intentionally about the design of our learning experiences specifically is thinking through um, instructional strategies. Like we were talking about earlier, this notion that we've passed through the first phase of just making it work. And now we know we can count on Zoom and, and conferencing applications to communicate Now we can think more creatively about what's the best way to use tools like this um, with our learners. Um, We don't necessarily have to sit in front of Zoom for long periods of time. And we also know that that's not instructionally effective according to what we know about how people learn, right, with regard to attention spans and and even just the, the need to physically move every now and then. But we can think about why should we use Zoom and for what? And what can we have learners do away from the computer that engages them in a learning activity that doesn't necessarily require them to be passive? We can take advantage of them being at home and having access to certain kinds of resources. And and even a technology as simple as the phone um, could be used to produce their own projects, um, reports, presentations much more easily than ever. So I think these opportunities to to think through creative solutions are more prevalent now that we've, we've established a sense of comfort with teaching in this way. Yeah, I agree. I'm hearing a couple of things in there. And it, it, again, it's something I can identify with here at DAU. Uh, number one is this idea that we're not merely translating what might have been a certain seat time expectation commensurate with bringing people physically into a class to be here for a few days and you literally have eight hour days or whatever it might be, we can now rethink that. We can take some of that knowledge transfer and put it into different formats, allow the student to also maybe have some autonomy on what and how and when they want to consume it. They can have choices and come to that classroom, perhaps a shorter class time that is just optimized for constructive things and just the best use of together time, as opposed to things that that can be done asynchronously, independently, autonomously. All the things we hear about adult learners, we can really put to good practice now. Dr. Lockie, what other changes or shifts or new practices have you seen develop that we can apply to learning as we look forward? Well, I think we've seen several things change in terms of responding to the shift to virtual learning. And and one of the great benefits, too, um, is the 
increased availability of digital resources that have been shared by organizations around the world to help support this global shift to online learning, right? So such as um, museums um, and NASA, for example, has made available their entire repository of virtual field trips and and virtual labs so students can engage across um, many different disciplines and age levels with these materials that are now universally available. Uh, Whereas maybe they weren't as available prior to the pandemic. Yeah, those have been some remarkable developments. I noticed, I think it was the Louvre or another famous museum that made a lot of their content available to peruse online. And that was very exciting. And I think related to this is suddenly, because the whole world has had to do this and institutions that aren't learning institutions per se, we suddenly have this enormous community of practice because the whole world is learning how to work remotely. So it's yeah, it's very pervasive. It's very profound. And I'm just thinking about how, you know, as instructional designers, we know it's all about performance outcomes. Performance, the nature of performance has changed because we're working differently. So just end to end, I think we're seeing a shift that's going to continue to kind of have its ripple effects and will be a feedback loop that continues to evolve us as we carry it forward. That's right, Anthony. I think the focus on what it is we're trying to accomplish when we design learning experiences, no matter what the learning context or organization we've had the opportunity to think carefully um, about that design experience now more so than ever. And another design decision related to an outcome of the pandemic that I think will benefit us um, moving forward is the acceptability of combining different delivery modes to tackle, you know, particular learning outcome or learning um, program Whereas, you know, we, we've thought just in terms of our, our educational cultures and traditions, you know, this is a, a classroom experience or this is an online experience, but we don't have to think that way anymore. I mean, we've broken these boundaries and I think we'll continue to see the lines blurred between delivery modes and, and increased adoption of combinations of multiple modes of delivery just based on what makes sense. Yeah, I agree. The the boundaries are broken. I like how you said that. We have a broader repertoire, a bigger tool set now. So in terms of modalities or delivery methods, we have a lot at our disposal to allow us to tailor things. And again, just connecting back to previous discussion about using the student's time well, giving them more autonomy and decision-making in what and how and when they want to learn, I think that gives us tremendous advantage as we look ahead. So how then, in light of what we've been talking about with the new performance and the new deliveries, when we turn our attention to measuring learning, what are the implications now? In the current context we're in, in virtual and remote learning, measuring learning has been one of the biggest challenges, I think, that educators and instructors have faced, uh, no matter what the context. 
So for those educators who've had a heavy reliance on, say, multiple choice tests to measure learning, there have been great concerns about cheating and a lot of effort invested in developing technological solutions to monitor students while they're taking tests. My response to that would be, is this really measuring the kind of learning that you're after? And can we think about how to take advantage of the parameters of this virtual learning environment to come up with some alternative forms of assessment that might be more authentic and and more directly related to the learning outcomes? What would be some examples of alternative ways of measuring the learning? I would recommend some more active approaches on the part of the student where they would have the opportunity to really think through what they've learned and engage with the content and make it yet another learning experience, right? So maybe creating a project or um, their own sort of presentation or product or representation of their new knowledge that they propose. And I realize there are some logistical constraints with that. You know, if you have 100 students, that becomes very difficult in terms of, you know, the instructor's time and in evaluating those um, projects. But there could be some opportunities for peer engagement, peer review of work, and more social kinds of activities that would be more engaging for the learner as well as a clear way of determining whether or not learning actually happened. Right. You know, in your answer, I'm hearing some verbs that are reminding me of the Bloom's Pyramid. What kinds of things are you touching on there? What kind of goodness are we extracting from the the higher levels of the taxonomy? Well, that's that's a great um, connection, Anthony, because what I am suggesting is thinking along the higher end of the taxonomy. And that is not to dismiss what happens at the lower end as well. When you you need to be able to describe and represent forms of knowledge in order to advance to the higher levels. But if what you're teaching is a process or applications or creation at the higher end of the taxonomy, then the assessment measures need to occur there too, right? Providing learners with opportunities for application and the creation um, of products or processes. This aligns well with the current maker movement you've probably heard a lot about. Yes. Yeah, it's astounding what can be done online with all kinds of various tools. Take a moment though to, if you can describe the maker movement for listeners who might not have heard about it. Okay. Well, the the maker movement is also actually based in the history of our field with um, Seymour Papert and his early work with the the logo programming with the turtle, uh, teaching kids how to do math through programming a turtle to move in certain directions. Um, And so kids actually engaged in programming experiences that caused them to learn math along the way, the programming and the working with the turtle was a hook. So um, in today's version of the maker movement, learners are making all sorts of things. And that that um, notion has been applied across a variety of learning experiences from programming and developing you know, programs, software products, for example, to creating robots. Um, and I'm sure you've probably heard about robotics competitions. Sure. Uh, 
Yeah. And so uh, Lego Lego's become a big player in our world. Exactly. Lego has actually honored the work of Seymour Papert and um, created their own representation of him (laughs) Hmm. and his early work of the, the logo turtle. Also, interestingly, the the maker movement has been applied in more creative disciplines like filmmaking and multimedia development for kids as well as adults. So we, we take ownership when we're provided these opportunities to apply what we know to create something that comes from our own imagination. It's very motivating. And so I think that's one of the reasons it's become such a popular um, assessment strategy. Yeah, very constructivist approach that, you know, the learn by doing. So all this application and synthesis, it it all comes together in what you're describing. Right. So Dr. Lockie, if I can ask you to be a prognosticator, I don't know if you've brought your crystal ball with you to this interview, but what (laughs) do you see, you know, if you had to project out and extrapolate what we're taking from this recent episode of what everything that 2020 brought us, what do you see for the next generation of learning? Well, Anthony, I think we'll continue to see things evolve in terms of how we approach the delivery of, of virtual education across different learning contexts. But I think with the paths that we've forged, like we talked about earlier, um, we will begin to take advantage of some of the the effort that we've put into solving a lot of the problems that we encountered in the early stages of the pandemic, like how do we make learning accessible and now moving on to how do we make it better? How can we take advantage of the affordances of these learning environments to make more engaging and more effective learning experiences across the board? I think we've got a world of opportunity in front of us. My guest today has been Dr. Barbara Lockie of Virginia Tech, the author of the new book, award-winning book, Streamlined ID, A Practical Approach to Instructional Design. Who is the publisher? Rutledge. Rutledge. And I imagine we can get that at all the usual places online. So uh, head to an Amazon near you or your favorite book purveyor and grab Dr. Lockie's book. Dr. Lockie, thank you very much for your time today. I think this will be very helpful to our audience. Thanks so much for having me here with you, Anthony. I truly enjoyed it. I as well. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.